down Are they gonna bail you out Or just run you around They said you should have a house The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 499 of the Survival Podcast. Almost 500 times we've gotten together all the way back from the day that I recorded episode 1, where I sat down in my car and screamed like a maniac to get prepared. I didn't know if anybody would listen, and one person listened, and that person was me. Well, now there's a bunch of you out there, and uh, because of that, we get to do shows on Friday called Call-In Friday. That's where you dial in to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK, and you tell me what you want me to talk about, what you want to know an answer to, or you give me a comment or a suggestion, and um, I screen through them, and I find you know maybe the 10 or 12 best at a time and put them on the air. That's what we're going to do today. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and make sure that this show is here for you. Now, I just came back from vacation. We'll chat about that in a second, but uh, most of the time the show is here Monday through Friday, uh, 52 weeks out of the year. I take off Christmas, Thanksgiving, and New Year's Day, and pretty much every other weekday there is a show. Um, Today, our sponsor of the day, number one, is Sawtooth Tactical. Everything you want from the tactical to the... uh, to everything else in life that you can think of that is uh, helping you live the tactical side of life, from Magpul magazines to uh, Maxpedition bags and everything else like that. They're a great company, great supporter of the show, been with us almost a year now, so they've stuck by us a long time. Uh, they really love doing business with you all, and they love to hear that the reason you're doing business with them is because you came from here. In fact, they love it so much, if you tell them that on your order in the notes section, they'll send you a free little goodie, usually a 50-foot hank of free paracord. So make sure you tell them when you order where you heard about them. Next up today, ready-made resources. Uh, What can you ask from a company more than for them to uh, tell you what they do? Ready-made resources does that because they provide you all the resources you need ready-made for your preparedness uh, lifestyle. Everything you can think of from long-term storage food to things like gardening tools, man. Ready-made resources have it. it. Make sure you check it out. Make sure you get their solar catalog. It is one of the most useful informational products I've ever seen, and it's free. Uh, they don't even ask you to join their email list, and I've been telling Bob over there, you need to get people to give you an email address to give them this thing, but he hasn't done it, so it's just there, so go by and download it. Uh, next up, make sure you check out our gear shop. We have a lot of new great stuff. I'll be doing some videos soon with some of the new gear that's coming out of the shop. Some of that stuff comes from Zazzle. It costs a little bit more, but we can answer questions like, can I get a triple extra large, or can I get one in pink or green with yes, yes, and yes. So that's why we're doing it that way. Make sure you join the little community over at the gear shop. Tell us what you want to see, because we're working with Zazzle now. We can put new product out really quick, so uh, make sure you're giving us feedback over there. We'll try to make the gear shop the best that it can be for you. Uh, next up today, I want to uh, 
reminds you guys about the Member Support Brigade. You, do, you join the Members Brigade, you get exclusive content available only to members, which is about 20 videos that I did uh, that are available nowhere else. But the big deal, you get a bunch of discounts. You get a bunch of discounts to uh, vendors that offer everything you could possibly look for in the survivalist and preparedness industry from herbals, Uh, for herbal supplementation and for herbal preps for herbal medicine to long-term storage food discounts to uh, seeds for your gardening and your permaculture and just a ton of stuff and uh, a bunch of free ebooks and, and all kinds of other great stuff. And that amounts to supporting the show at 20 cents an episode and you get a great return of investment. Uh, last but not least today, I want to point out we're going to actually have two heroes of the week today. One at the beginning of the show and one at the end. The one at the end will be a sheriff that I'm really proud to uh, to, to know as an American and standing up for, for the rights of the people that lives in his district. Uh, but today we actually have a hero of the week who did this a couple weeks ago, but I didn't have a chance with going away to talk about it, who's been a good friend to the show, and his name is Shannon Appleby. And they're heroes of the week because it's Shannon, his wife Stacy, and his sons Tyler and Kane uh, were on vacation in Pikes Peak Park when, because of rainy weather, they decided to take a side trip to Escatter and do some shopping and see the historical sites in that area. While driving across the Keystone Bridge, they noticed a unique onion-shaped dome on a house of Tim and Becky Dietzler's, located at the corner of Westbridge and 2nd Street. Driving by the residence, they noticed a small fire on the porch on a house owned by Michael Burnett across the street from the uh, cool dome-shaped house. Uh, what Shannon said is, at first I thought it was a little grill. My wife thought it was one of those fake fireplaces. Uh, but his son Tyler said he thought the house was on fire, so Shannon turned the car around and decided to check it out. Uh, long story short, I'll post a link to uh, the Clayton County Register, but the house was on fire. Uh, there was a windowsill burning, and uh, the boys acted quickly and uh, helped out, and the wife got the... Um, The garden hose and Shannon forced his way into the house and was able to save a dog. And then uh, when other people came, they were able to get a second dog out of the house. And they prevented the house from being fully engulfed. Uh, there was nobody home at the time. And it was a smoking cigarette left behind type thing. Uh, but had they not been vigilant, stopped, and taken care of this, this house would have uh, burned to the ground. And, of course, the two dogs would have probably been consumed with flames. This is a horrible way to go. Uh, so Shannon Appleby... Hero of the Week, along with the rest of your family, man. Thank you. And folks that don't know, Shannon's been a good friend of the show. If you watch my videos on YouTube and you see the cool thing at the beginning with the Val head coming down and the spinning headphones and all, Shannon did that free of charge. He's a videographer and one of the best in the industry. And as I understand, might be available right now. So if you need a good videographer, get in touch with me and I'll put you in touch with Shannon. Salute to you, Shannon. Um, Hero of the Week. So with that... Intro, you know, intro done and long, but hey, Hero of the Week segment, and I think that was a cool one to hear. That's our own person there, folks. That's a member of this community that's been listening almost since, you know, those days when it was just me in the car screaming like lunatics. So with that, let's go ahead and uh, take first question of the day. And remember, you can have your questions on the air. If you dial 866-65-THINK, you get about two minutes to leave your question or comment, so be direct. Get to the point, ask your question, and we'll see if we can get you on the air. And I'll let you know I had a huge backlog. We're almost caught up now, so if you call in the next week or two, you probably could hear yourself within the next two to three shows. Uh, so we do need some new calls, so let's hear them come on in, and let's go ahead and take that first call. I had a question regarding uh, food storage. I saw your video um, where you canned uh, zucchini and gold line paint cans. 
My question is, how full do they have to be? Even when using a regular number 10 can, how full, um, how much headroom can there be? Can you fill it halfway and just add extra absorbers? Hope to get the answer. Appreciate it. A good question. If you wanted to get all technical and be accurate scientifically, you'd say that a O2 absorber comes with a certain CC, which is a cubic centimeters of oxygen that it's capable of absorbing, and you would calculate the cubic centimeters of the can, and then you would calculate the volume you've taken up, allowing for loose space within all of the material, and and uh, then you put the exact number or a little bit higher of cubic centimeters of O2 absorption in with the can, and you could fill it you know, a quarter or all the way, and it wouldn't matter. You'd do the same thing. Let's make it simple. Dehydrated vegetables stored in an airtight container, even without O2 absorbers, have an extremely long shelf life. The only thing the O2 absorbers do is take up excess oxygen and thereby increase the longevity of the O2 absorber. So... What does that mean? If it's not completely full, toss a couple extra ones in there and just let it go and you're good. Um, you could probably store them in the cans without them. And you still have like two, three years of no worries. I mean, it really is that great of a method of preserving vegetables. I have some dehydrated vegetables that are in Ziploc bags that have been big, giant, one-gallon bags that have been resealed and opened and resealed and opened that are two years old, and they taste as good as they did the day they were dehydrated. Uh, they're just things that aren't, you know, you use a handful here and a cup there, and uh, they've lasted that long. So don't sweat that. If you really wanted to uh, to hedge your bet, you'd get a food-grade plastic bag um, that was sealable, and you would put that into the container. You'd put your Ziploc bag in there. You'd force as much oxygen as you can. You'd seal that bag by whatever means you wanted to, including tying a freaking knot in it for, for, if it was a good quality bag that would, that would act as a seal. And then you'd maybe toss a few in the extra empty space of the can and seal it up. I don't think you need to go that far. Just toss them in there, throw a few O2 absorbers, and rock on with life and understand that it's an added precaution. It's not even a necessity to get a year or two easily of life out of a well and properly dehydrated vegetable. So folks that maybe didn't get that in her question, um, that's what she was asking about. It's not canning in a typical jarred sense with heat, but taking dehydrated vegetables and using phenolically lined, food-grade, FDA-approved paint cans. So there you go. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Marshall from Chicago, uh, the gun-friendly state. Anyways, um, I was just catching up on your uh, survival podcast listener feedback from when you just got back from vacation and you had a question about the diesels and the diesel hybrids. And there is one company that is doing uh, diesel hybrid uh, thinking or, uh, I guess, uh, research and they're getting ready to put it into production. It's uh, Mahatma. It's an, I believe, an India company, Indian company, but they are making a uh, compact-sized pickup truck uh, that is a diesel hybrid. Um, I'm not sure what the EPA rating is on it, but I know that the diesel, the standalone diesel, is getting somewhere in the range of. 45 to 50 miles a gallon, think in a pickup truck about the size of a Chevy S10, and somewhere along the lines of the towing capacity of an F250. So it's a compact pickup truck with a full-size towing package. Um, also, I've got a, a, a 95 E300 diesel, which is a non-turbo diesel car, and uh, I take that out as my, uh, my road trip vehicle, and I routinely get upwards of 50 miles to the gallon from that. So 
to all the hybrids out there, um, I think I get a little bit better mileage. Anyways, have a good one. Thanks a bunch. Bye. Well, interesting. And for those that don't know, I took a question a while back about why aren't there any diesel hybrids? And I theorized that it was basically because when you add a diesel motor to a vehicle, let's take a a typical vehicle you would want to add a diesel to, something like a Ford F-250, a big truck, uh, you will generally add almost $10,000 of cost to the vehicle just by going from a gas engine to a diesel engine. You look at buying a $30,000 truck, and now you're looking at adding 25% to the cost of the vehicle. Jetta Diesel TDI, back when I bought mine in 2006, it was the last year they made them where they quit for a year and came back with them, um, I paid 26 for my car. It was the sticker price, and the guy said, you can pay the sticker price or go somewhere else. And that was because they were standing firm, because they were selling out the last of an inventory, and they knew what they had. And uh, you could have bought a comparably equipped Jetta for about 19. So you're looking at 7,000 there. So now you're looking at $7,000 on a, let's call it a 28,000, just to be fair, and we're still looking at 20%, right? So when you when you look at 20 to 25% increase in a vehicle in the mid-priced sweet spot range people want to sell, you know, if you can take a car to 50 miles to the gallon, 40 miles to the gallon with just going diesel and compete with hybrids, then trying to add hybrid technology, you push the price of the vehicle out of its price point for what it is. And people only buy it on ego and vanity at that point. And how much more can you get? Well, the key to making that work then is to go to ultra-low-cost manufacturing. So don't think, because this company is named after food, Mahatma's a kind of rice, uh, and comes out of India, that it won't make an entrance and a splash. It may very well, because of the labor advantages in a place like India, they may be able to pull this off. People laughed at Kia, and look at Kia now. Kia has some amazing vehicles now. Their low-end stuff, let's face it, it's still crap. Their low-end stuff is garbage. Their mid-priced, upper-priced vehicles are pretty impressive, especially little crossovers and things like that. We may see that come out of Mahatma. I don't know if they can pull it off or not, but that's what it's going to take. It's going to take a Chinese company, an Indian company, someone with ultra-low labor rates, maybe even the Koreans to pull this off. People who have tried it and have messed around with it. Mercedes actually has a car coming out. It's extremely expensive for what it is, even as a Mercedes. Volkswagen built one and decided not to release it. I had, like I said, all this feedback coming about this concept uh, after I did the, the first show on it and decided not to release it because they said no one's going to buy it. It's going to it's going to be cost too much to buy something in the you know the realm of a, 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 a Jetta or even a CC kind of their upper end cars. It's just too expensive. We can just tweak the hell out of the diesel. Push it to you know 44 to 50 miles per gallon, and we can sell the hell out of them. So why mess around with all this complication, expense, and things like that? So that's what's holding back that development. It's going to take low labor costs to make that flip around. And the 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 upside though is, if you can take a gas motor, and a gas motor you typically can tweak out to about 30 miles to the gallon in, in an average, right? Uh, and, and maybe down from there, and you can push it to 40 or 50. If you take a motor that's already doing 40 to 50 and you add hybrid technology to it, there are estimates that diesel hybrids with lots of power uh, could go upwards into the 75 to 85 mile per gallon range. You know, it all depends on what you want to do and how much money you want to spend and what you can sell. The problem with diesel is not really that it's that much more expensive to build a diesel motor. It's expensive to build a diesel motor because they build a lot less of them, and you deal with economy of scale. And in America, diesel is sold at a premium for the same reason. Less diesel vehicles on the road, less diesel fuel produced, 
therefore cost more. Then we had to play around with ultra-low sulfur diesel. That drove the price up because the reality is making plain old diesel fuel is easier than making gasoline. So we'll keep an eye on that front. Thanks for all the feedback on it. And let's keep an eye on these Mahatma guys and see if they come up with anything that will actually sell in the American market. Like I said, don't put these people down. I'm still waiting for China to bring the brilliance as a car line they're working on to America. I thought that would have happened by now. I've been wrong about that. But I bet you we will see the brilliance in America before the end of 2012. If we don't, I don't know if it's ever going to show up. If we don't see it by the end of 2012, I'm totally wrong on this. And China is not looking to enter the American market anytime soon. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one of your questions. Jack, love the show. Uh, would love to have you uh, do something that I can't even find YouTube videos on. Uh, and that would be um, possibly a discussion or a YouTube video on um, hitting the um, five-gallon buckets with nitrogen. Um, for long-term storage. That would be greatly appreciated. Thank you very much for your time, and uh, take care. I think what we need to do is ask, why don't we see anything about this? And the reason is because there's a much less complicated technology you can use to do the same thing. One would be O2 absorbers, but let's say we wanted to put an inert gas into the uh, bucket. Well, it's much easier and much more reasonable for people to use CO2 to do this with, And there's uh, two methods that I've experimented with, and both of them seem to work rather well for me uh, in this regard. I'll give you both of them. One is the old dry ice method with bulk storage, like things like beans or rice, where basically you set a piece of dry ice uh, with it with something to keep it off the top layer uh, on the top of the bucket, and you just let it defrost itself, and since CO2 is heavier, it goes down into the bucket. You can seal it once it's mostly gone, and the CO2 displaces all of the oxygen, right? So that's an easy way to do it. Here's a less complicated way to do it. Um, if you mix vinegar and baking soda, it puts off what? CO2. CO2 is heavier than air. So if you take a somewhat sealed container... Uh, put vinegar and CO2 into it. Anytime you're working with CO2, you need to be in a well-ventilated area. CO2 poisoning is painless and odorless and puts you to sleep, and you go to sleep and never wake up. So you got to be in a well-ventilated area. Uh, take your bucket, use a tube into your sealed, your, your sealed container. Allow the reaction to go on for a while, long enough for the CO2 to displace any oxygen in the bottle, and uh, take that tube and put it to the bottom of your bucket. And you basically fill the bucket from the bottom up with CO2, let the reaction run as long as you believe it needs to, seal it up. Both of those are so much easier than getting a hold of a, a tank full of nitrogen, uh, less expensive as well, something you can do with items that are common preps in the form of vinegar and CO2. I think a lot of people are not aware of that, that vinegar and CO2 combined, or vinegar and uh, baking soda combined, produce CO2. Uh, but it's a little science experiment we do back when we were kids, and I thought, hey, this is cool. We actually did an experiment like this when I was in school to show us how CO2 was heavier than oxygen. We took a beaker, put a few tablespoons of baking soda in there, dumped some vinegar on it, and let it do its thing, and let it do its thing for a while. We made a simple balance, and we made it with a pin, with a yardstick, and we had two grocery bags on each side of it perfectly balanced. You then take the beaker, right, which looks completely empty, You hold it over top of one of the bags and you pour a gas. doesn't seem possible because you can't see it. But when you pour the CO2 gas into one of the bags, the balance tips. And you can actually measure the weight of CO2 versus atmospheric oxygen and nitrogen with trace amounts of CO2 by dumping it into the bag. It's pretty cool. 
interesting way to do things. Good thing to know, because again, we can use the CO2 uh, as an inert gas for storage using common preps without having any kind of electronics or things like that available to us. CO2, baking soda, be careful, well-ventilated area at all times. Yes, it's possible with a lot of it to produce enough to asphyxiate yourself. You would have to use a lot, but you know, stranger things have occurred. You could also use it to put this, put animals to sleep. Not generally things like dogs and cats, come on. Um, but for reptile breeders, there's a lot of small-scale reptile breeders that run their own mouse farms, and they basically make a kill chamber, and they use CO2 and baking soda to uh, charge their kill chamber and put their mice to sleep without any pain. Um, never tried it, but since I'm a herpetologist, that's why I kind of know about the technology in the first place, which is pretty simple. It's a straw and uh, a sealed container with that straw taking the uh, CO2 to a container where it's air sealed on the bottom and fills to the bottom, just like a bucket. So that's why I don't think you see a lot about hitting buckets with nitrogen when it's so much easier to do with CO2. Nitrogen being the primary gas in the atmosphere is not heavier uh, it will displace. It's not as easy to do. You'd have to seal the bucket and force it in and force it out, where CO2 can basically be poured into the bucket. Last thing, those little uh, hand warmers and foot warmers you buy at Walmart, big ones, they're a giant O2 absorber. Basically, an O2 absorber is nothing but iron with some things added to it to make the iron rust faster. When iron rusts, it heats up and it absorbs oxygen to oxidize the iron. That's all an O2 absorber. It's a little tiny hand warmer. If you take an O2 absorber uh, out of a sealed container, set it on a counter, leave it there for a few minutes to pick it up, it'll start to warm up. So, in a large bucket, you can go out and buy some hand warmers or foot warmers from Walmart, toss a couple of them in there, and let them act as your O2 absorber. So, uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another one of your questions. Hey, Jack. It's Brian in Akron. want to thank you for the show, and I had a quick question about coyote hunting. I always taught my son that, uh, you know, we don't kill anything unless there's a reason to. And I know there's a reason to get rid of coyotes, but I've been invited to uh, go out coyote hunting on a farm to get rid of some of these. And I didn't know if there was any useful, anything useful that we could do with the coyote carcass after we dispatch it. Um, thanks for the show, and I uh, look forward to hearing another great episode. Uh, well, coming from a guy that's eating groundhog, possum, and raccoon, I won't eat coyote. If I was starving to death and it was the only thing that I had, I would eat coyote. Having skinned a few coyotes, the odor is, ugh, and uh, they're a carrion eater. They spend a lot of times, you know, eating things like mice and all, but they'll also eat anything. Uh, they are America's version, slightly larger, of the African jackal. If it's rotted and stinks and nothing will touch it, a coyote will eat it. And uh, on top of that, being a an omnivore uh, that's primarily carnivorous and being a, a canine, you know, I'm sorry, they're just not good eating, and, and they're not. What can you do with a coyote? Well, uh, the pelts are actually great, so make sure you pelt them out, uh, stretch your board, salt your pelts, and you can tan them or, or, or sell them or whatever, but coyote uh, hide is a great material for making coats and anything you'd want to keep warm. It's probably one of the best furs in the world uh, for something to keep warm, even if it was only used as a liner. Um, for someone that didn't want like a fur coat looking fur coat, but a, a coyote fur lined coat, uh, would be one of the warmest things. Anything, in, the only thing in North America that would probably be warmer would be, uh, caribou fur. 
uh, because their hair is actually a hollow like a straw, and it's probably the best insulator uh, of anything in North America, maybe muskox, all right? So, I mean, lower 48, it is the best thing you could ever use for insulation, uh, and it's also pretty, and uh, usually, if they're nice pelts, if they're not mangy or whatever, you can usually sell them for a few bucks. But the only other thing is, I guess you could use the bones, uh, for making some tools for flint napping or whatever. There's better things for that, though. Bone handle knives. You could use the sinews uh, for making bowstrings, but you're probably better off using dead coyote for coyote bait. Uh, I have a, a circular uh, thing there. there it's about probably the only thing that would ever eat a dead coyote is another coyote. Uh, someone's going to write in and told me they tried coyote and it was good, and if you, you liked it, fine, but... There are certain things that, you know, we take what we can and, and we leave the rest for Mother Nature. And uh, I think coyote is one of those. And I think the best use of a coyote is just the pelt. Um, there is definitely a need in certain areas for them to be thinned out. They are very hard on young livestock during calving season. Uh, for those that kind of fantasize about the wolf-coyote thing, and I love coyotes and wolves in a way, uh, but if you've ever seen a canine kill, it is not like a lion kill. It is a horrible way to go. They are vicious killers. Uh, not of human beings, obviously, but young cattle and uh, other livestock. And they are a danger to domesticated dogs as well. So I don't mind killing them, and even if it's just killing enough of them to keep them wary. Uh, the problem with coyotes is when they're not killed, when they're not shot for long enough, they lose their inherent fear, they become incredibly brazen, and we end up with them in backyards doing things like killing people's uh, little dogs and even larger than, than little dogs and things like that. So I hate to, to waste something as valuable as meat, but with a coyote I don't see it as wasted. I see it as a byproduct with not a hell of a lot of use. I wouldn't use it for compost or anything like that, but left out in the plains, nature will take it from there. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Byron. I love the show, and thank you for your work. I recently got a dehumidifier to keep my food storage location uh, dry, and I just kind of realized that I'm producing uh, several gallons of water a day. So I'm in a location where I don't really have the opportunity to get a well, and it's kind of a nice opportunity to, to create some water. I'm wondering if you know any drawbacks from drinking from a dehumidifier. Thank you, and uh, keep up the good work. Well, here's the thing. Um, in and of itself, it is, uh, it's distilled water. It's the purest water in the world, which means it's also completely and totally free of any useful thing like a mineral. So as a hydration uh, substance, it is what it is, and that's all it is. And it, it doesn't provide any of the minerals or, or other things that are generally in groundwater that might be beneficial to you. Strictly speaking, it should be the safest water in the world to drink, but it probably isn't. Because, see, there's these things called condenser coils where all of that water uh, from dehumidification lands on, and then they drip down into a drip pan. And those coils are sitting there out in the open. They're not food-grade because it's not what it's intended for. They're not sealed off in any way. It's not protected. And those coils, because they're constantly damp, can harbor things like mold and funguses, which, of course, ends up in your water that you would then drink. So you probably should not drink water from a dehydrator. You probably could drink it many times with no problems, but the one time you have a problem, it might be a really nasty problem. Um, as Dave Canterbury put it on Dual Survivor, may, you know, at, at best spray in the rocks, uh, which is nasty, but Dave has a way of putting things, uh, and at worst actually being somewhat life-threatening. So I would not drink water from a dehydrator without 
some additional form of sterilization, and I would understand it is inherently limited. It is like drinking distilled water uh, at that point. So uh, nothing but water. But if you boiled it, it would be fine. So in a survival situation, I don't think you'd be running your dehydrator, though. What the water is perfectly fine for, though, is watering and irrigation. And uh, that's what I would look at doing with it, is finding a way to use it as irrigation water, uh, because it will be fine for that. So best answer I can give you on that one. Short one, simple one. Uh, I guess if you sterilized or sanitized your coil on a daily basis with like a weak bleach solution, it should be okay. I, and you would stuff the, whatever you're collecting it and doing the same thing. It still sits there for several or more hours in a moist environment with all of the bleach rinsed off the coil. I wouldn't do it. Um, if I was going to dehydrate and die and I had no way to sanitize it and it was just sitting there, I'd probably break down and utilize it and take the risk. But I wouldn't do it on a daily basis. Use it for irrigation. That's its best use. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is a financial Dave Ramsey-style question. Um, I have an IRA. It's managed by um, Morgan Stanley, and I've never been too thrilled with you know, the results of it. I had purchased one stock, which was Netflix, back when it was like 9 to $15, and it recently reached $130 plus, dollars, and I decided it was uh, time to collect that. So I sold off that stock. I'm in a situation where I've got about, we'll put it this way, I've got about the same amount of debt as I do from the sale of this stock. If I sell the off the IRA, I could pay off all my debt and have a few thousand left over. Um, kind of debating with my wife, she kind of read a thing where Dave Ramsey says, no, don't sell your investment, that's, you know. Well, here's the thing. If you were holding this as just, stock and then in a money market account and it was on the table as money you could just spend 100% of other than paying the taxes on the profit, I would say we might want to consider eliminating debt with it or eliminating a huge portion of the debt and keeping a little bit of it as a reserve capital situation. Um, given that it's an IRA and you didn't say Roth, so we don't have any loopholes we can use to get the majority of the money out. Conventional IRA, we're going to pay a 10% penalty, and we're going to pay 100% income tax on all the distributions, and we're going to end up losing about 40% of that money just to get it out of, out of being held hostage by the KGB, uh, as Dave Ramsey calls them. I call them the IRS because that's what they are, but I understand why he calls them the KGB. They remind me of that, too. So... The problem is that we're going to lose, and maybe with some creative bookkeeping at the end of the tax year and with enough deductions, effectively we pay 30%. We're still losing a large portion of that money. So the concept of, I'm just going to throw numbers at it because you can give it to me. Let's say you're 30 in debt and you have 35 in your IRA or 20 in debt and have 25. It doesn't really matter. You have a few thousand extra. It ain't going to happen. You're not going to totally eliminate the debt. And what you are going to do is totally eliminate a tax-sheltered investment. So... That's a problem, and I really probably wouldn't do this, especially if you don't have any other retirement accounts. Now, if you have a 401k sitting somewhere, and you were smart, and when the market crashed, before it did, you pulled it out, and you've got four or $500,000 in a 401k, it's, it's being saved for your retirement, you're 20 years away from retirement, and you're going to manage that and be smart with it and not let it go, You know, and this is just an extra IRA, and taking into account the penalties... You can get rid of the debt. It might be worth doing. You have to make that decision yourself. 
If it were plain old accessible money, I would simply ask you, if you had no money and no debt, would you borrow the money to go into debt? And you would say no, and I'd say then pay the debt off. This is not the same thing. If this money is slated for retirement, it probably needs to stay there till that age 59 and a half or older when you want to withdraw it under the structure that it was designed and maximize its use. That's why you put it in there. Now, it's all sitting in cash. You may want to find a different way to allocate that right now. Next week, I'm going to talk about some unique investment strategies that I've come across that are really safe even in a down market. And we'll do a show on finance for stuff like that. And you might want to consider that. But, man, I wouldn't want to pay the KGB 30 to 45% to get the money out and still have some debt left over. What you might want to do is cease contributions, use that money to get rid of the debt, and then go back to contributions to whatever savings you're going to do. And please don't contribute 100% of your savings to retirement accounts like this because you might want them liquid for a reason exactly like this at some point where you wake up and go, that sucks, I want out. Best I can do on that one, let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack, this is Derek Sheriff from Arizona. I recently attended a class about backyard chickens sponsored by my local permaculture center. And when I was asked, I asked a question about using black soldier flies as chicken feed, and I mentioned offhand I was interested in keeping a hen or two in my backyard to be more self-sufficient. Well, the guy teaching the class said right up front, if you want to be more self-sufficient, don't raise chickens. And he explained that chickens are such a highly domesticated animal that they require commercial feed if you want healthy chickens that produce eggs that actually taste good. So what I'm wondering is this. Do hens really require commercial feed to stay healthy and produce eggs that taste good? And if so, is there another small animal I can raise for food that doesn't require commercial feed? Thanks again for your podcast and all the important work you're doing to reach, teach, and inspire people. Well, what we have there is an example of a person being right and wrong at the same time, and that is possible. If you had a quarter-acre conventional lot and you wanted to raise 12 chickens in it and you said you wanted eggs out of them and uh, you didn't want to buy any commercial feed at all, I would tell you it's not doable. It's not possible. Too many birds on too small of an area with not enough natural supply of food. You want to do two birds in a backyard about like that, I'd say you can almost pull it off. And I would tell you you need to raise probably three. Let's break this into a couple things here. One, you said a couple hens for eggs. You can raise chickens for eggs without a rooster. You get infertile eggs, and they taste just fine, and you'll never know the difference. And, you know, you don't end up with little chickens in the eggs if they go a few hours past when you should have gone ahead and extracted them and, and put them into the fridge. So there's some benefit there, actually. Um, but what generally happens in a flock without a rooster is one of the hens takes on the role of the rooster. Uh, I remember this. My grandmother decided we were going to get some new roosters. Uh, we were having problems with the two roosters she had, and uh, one was just a, a, it was an ass, and the other one, she just felt he was old and it was time for him to go, so both of them went to the stew pot, and we brought in a new rooster, new young rooster, and, and brought him up, and he became... During that time, when there was no rooster in the, in the... And we actually thinned out the whole flock at that point, and we ended up kind of really restarting with a whole new flock and, and things like that. Um, when there was no rooster around, though, the hen, one, like the, the head hen basically took on that role, and she still laid an egg or two, but nowhere near what she was normally accustomed to. She was the producer and kind of the head chicken, I guess, among the, the alpha female, and she really stopped laying. And I've researched this, and a lot of people have noticed the same things. They have five or six hens, and one hen doesn't lay, and she seems to be the head bird. And it's that that kind of flock leadership role 
is necessary, and without the rooster, one of the hens will fill it, not completely, because she's not a rooster, but in a way. So there's one thing to think about. So instead of two, you might want three. Instead of three, you might want four. Keep the number down. As far as the birds being fed from a self-sufficient environment, see, you already had part of the solution, and the guy probably doesn't know about black soldier flies. They're an extremely good source of protein and fat. They can be produced absolutely from waste out of your, your garbage and, and setting up a good black soldier fly uh, breeding system. They can be frozen or refrigerated to slow down their metamorphosis once they're in a cocoon shape. And they are just wonderful for chickens. And there's a big part of their protein requirements for chickens. In a backyard scenario, though, he's probably right in that you're going to need to buy some commercial feed. But do you know how much chicken feed you can buy for 50 bucks? And do you know how long that'll last you with a flock of three or four birds? Um, so is it self-sufficient? Well, is the money irrelevant, right? And can you store it for a, can you store the feed for a long period of time and make it part of your storage? Like any other thing you would store, like extra dog food for your dogs or extra food for yourself. Yeah, so to me you're still very self-sufficient, certainly highly self-reliant in that aspect. And then do you plant things for your chickens? You know, do you plant things that they'll like to eat? Amaranth is a great grain for chickens. Grows easily. You can grow it through a big part of the year, especially where you live. Do you plant things like berries and things that you allow some of those to be consumed by the chickens? If you plant things for them, you increase the cell sufficiency. You're probably going to need some feed, but not a tremendous amount. Now, if you have a couple acres or more, and the chickens are given free range on that property and you only have a few birds, they will largely look after themselves. Marjorie has, I don't remember, but a lot of acres. It's more than 40, I think. And she has a flock of probably about 12 birds, and I think they get very little commercial feed. Now, if you wanted uh, an animal that you can grow most of its own food and rely minimally on commercial feed, um, probably rabbits would be your best bet. Uh, ducks, you have the right environment. They largely look after themselves. Most livestock, you're going to have to put in some commercial feed. That just doesn't mean you're not self-sufficient. It just means that you're getting some of your supplies from outside your own system, somebody else's system. Well, unless you're going to go off-grid and disappear and never deal with anybody else, you're never going to be 100% self-sufficient anyway. So why try to apply that to one minuscule part of your life? The question is, will $50 worth of feed give you more eggs than $50? And the answer is, with a well-run flock, absolutely. So there's my best answer on that one. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hello, Jack. It's Tom from Florida. And uh, I've taken many of your suggestions and cut up all my cards, and I'm going on a cash basis with my life. But I still have this Flex sending account with my company, and I've just hit a brick wall with them. I didn't save enough receipts or didn't abide by all their red tape and they turned off my card and they're holding me hostage for a bunch of receipts for my doctor. Is the flex spending card just another shell game with credit or is it actually a uh, legitimate form of saving on your taxes and for health expenses? Please let me know what you think. Interesting you. question. Probably applies to a lot of people. There's a lot of companies out there that consider a flexible spending plan uh, as part of your medical expenses, uh, a benefit. This HR person will sit down with you, explain to you how great it is because that's his or her job, whether she thinks that it's great or not. She has to present it to you as being great. Um, here's the reality. It's not a shell game, really. Okay, It's not like a credit card or something like that. It's not really spending money you don't have or anything like that. There's nothing really inherently wrong with it. There is a float 
anytime there's money going somewhere and say, staying in a place before it goes somewhere else, there's a financial institution holding on to it, and there's an opportunity to profit by lending against it or earning interest on it or what have you. So there's somebody's making some money on a float there. It could be the employer for a period, a financial institution for another period, and then eventually the money's gone because it's a deduction from your taxes. Here's what a flexible spending account really is. There are certain medical expenses out there that if you pay them out of pocket, they become a deduction from your income tax. And you do not need to use flexible spending to do that. All you have to do is save up all your receipts, take them to your accountant at the end of the year when you do your taxes, and deduct them from your income tax. That's all, nothing more. Flexible spending doesn't really change that in any way. What it does is it allows you to take the deduction today versus at the end of the tax year. That's all that it is. It is just like if you have a 401k with your employer, every time you contribute money to it, it becomes a tax deduction, a conventional 401k. You don't pay tax on that money. And they don't tax that money that week when they pay you that week's paycheck. If you do an IRA on your own, right, you put the money in, and then you deduct it when you do your taxes, and you get the money back later. Flexible spending is kind of the same way. I have two options. If I have flexible spending with work, I can have I cannot be taxed for the money today, right, Or if I run my own expenses on my you know my own itemized tax return, I can get the money back next year. All right, that's it, and that's all it does. For you. It keeps everything organized, and it somewhat somewhat defers accountability for the deduction to the employer. That's why they're holding you hostage. If they get audited by the IRS, the IRS is going to say you didn't do withholding on this employee for X dollars. Why not? And they're going to say because it's under flexible spending. Here's the receipts. That doesn't ever preclude the IRS from coming after you, though. But they're probably going to go after the employer because the employer's got more money and is an easier target, um, especially in that situation. Because you're going to just say, hey, I did what they said. And they're just going to tell you, well, you owe us you know, $15 more this year because this one receipt. And they're going to nail the crap out of your employer. That's why they're being skittish about it. The other way to do this, though, is if you know you have enough flexible spending then you can increase your deductions. Instead of doing a deduction at single zero if you have no dependents, you can do single one. If you have two kids and a wife and you follow this head of household and you do married two to make sure they're taking a little extra out, or married four, which would be the proper number, you know, according to the chart, uh, you could maybe bump it to married five. If you, so you don't have, so now you might owe money back. It's up to you how you want to handle your taxes. But flexible spending, not a scam. It simply is not paying the taxes now versus getting a rebate later. And it requires you to be organized so you don't forget those receipts. If you want to spend it out of there, you have to provide the receipt. If you put all your receipts away, take them to your accountant to sum total them at the end, have your accountant do a sanity check and say, does this qualify? You basically do the same thing, only you're getting the money back next year. And you don't have to deal with your employer to do it. Right? But now you take 100% of the risk. That's the other side. Risk-reward ratios all around. When you file that way, if there's going to be an audit about that particular deduction, they're coming to you and only you versus you maybe through your employer who made the mistake. Make sense? All right, let's go ahead and take another one. Hello, Jack. This is Bob from Ontario, Canada. A uh, really big fan since probably Christmas when I got my iPod. The first thing I downloaded was your show. Uh, I've really learned a lot, and I like to think it's changed uh, my way of thinking. Married 28 years, worked in a shipyard for 30 years. Uh, I've dealt with the layoffs off and on, good times, bad times, 
for the duration of those 30 years. My house paid for, 20000 on a line of credit on a new vehicle. And my question to you, Jack, is uh, I've come into possession of a uh, World War II survival gun. Uh, there's a gun they used, the pilots used in their uh, jump-out bags. It is a 22 Hornet. It, uh, I was just wondering maybe the value, uh, how rare it is. It's uh, the ones I've seen on uh, the, uh, gun auctions are going for somewhere around two thousand. This one is uh, is chrome or nickel plated, a very beautiful gun. Uh, just wonder what you think of it, and uh, like I said, love the show, Jack. Keep it up. Thank you very much. Bye. Well, one kudos to you for living within your means and pay that twenty thousand dollar truck loan off as soon as you possibly can and be debt free again, fully one hundred percent debt free. It'll make you really really happy and you'll feel good about yourself when you do it. And uh, nothing wrong with taking out a loan on a car, I think, if uh, if it makes sense financially and uh, and you pay it quicker than the dealership tells you to, and you don't owe any other money. I understand why somebody would, would do that. Um, probably not what I would do, but I get it. Uh, on the gun, since you didn't give me a model, I can only guess. There's there's two weapons that, that kind of spring to mind for me, and one is the uh, H&R M4, and the other one is the Springfield M6, and both of those are 2200 over 410. You didn't mention if it was an under-over with the shotgun uh, uh, underneath the rifle, but I'm going to guess that's what it is. Those weapons don't sell for anywhere near $2,000 new. If there's a, a different model or if there's a collector value to the World War II issued versions, uh, not something I've ever looked into, but if it is the weapon you have, and it is not being listed for, but selling for that price, that is relatively the fair market value. There is no more accurate estimation of the value of something than what Party A will pay, pay Party B for it right now at this point in time. So if you're seeing it sell for that, that's probably what it's worth. I am worried about one thing. You said it's nickel or chrome-plated. You're not sure which, but it's a pretty gun. Um, in my limited knowledge about both of those weapons, I don't know of either one ever being made in nickel or stainless or plated in any way. Which may mean that the person that acquired it at some point during its journey from being you know, issued to a pilot uh, to, to getting into your hands may have done it aftermarket. And that may severely impact the collector value of the gun. It makes sense to do because it's going to be a lot more impervious to things like rust and harsh conditions. But if you think about a survival tool, the last thing you want is to be bright, shiny silver. So unless a limited run of these were made for some particular reason, whether they were issued to officers as a, uh, you know, like a, a, a kind of an award type thing or something, I don't know about that. If you'll get back in touch with me by email, and my email address is jack at the survivalpodcast.com, send me some pictures of the weapon, let me know its model number, I can look a little bit more into it for you. But my instinct is that you might have a collector value issue. It, it, it definitely, if it wasn't issued that way, if somebody did that to it, it adversely affected the collector value. My thought is I would hold on to it anyway. Great gun, great piece of history, and unless I was hurting for money, I probably wouldn't sell it anyway, but it'd be interesting to know. So please let me know by email what the model of the weapon is, send me a picture or two if you can, and I'll try to find out more information on it for you. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. I've got a couple fruit trees, and a lot of the leaves are getting pretty eaten up, especially the peach tree. didn't see a lot of like Japanese beetles on it. 
Um, I saw something called milky spore, which I guess is supposed to be a bacteria. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Is that an effective uh, use? I mean, it seemed to be more for lawns, but I mean, would that help keep down the Japanese beetle problem? Um, anyways, we'd love to hear your thoughts on milky spore. Sounds weird, I know. You know, I have to just be honest with you. I'm not real familiar with Milky Spore. It's not something I've looked into. And uh, with a time crunch today to get this show out, I didn't have a chance to kind of look it up and learn more about it. It's something I'll check into, and if I find out some uses for it, I'll bring it up in another show. But my instinct is that if it's something made for lawns, it's probably not really going to be effective on something like a Japanese beetle. A Japanese beetle is a tough critter. Um, they're a destructive critter, and uh, I don't like them. And I don't like them because they are kind of tough to kill. That said, neem oil is dynamite on them. Um, it takes about two or three weeks before it really starts to work, uh, but it disrupts their central nervous system to a point where it'll wipe out most of your problem using a diluted solution of neem oil. This late in the year, it's probably not that big of a concern. Your peaches have either produced or not produced by now, and they're not going to be stripped bare by these things. Uh, so you, you, you don't really need to worry about it this year. I would look at maybe trying neem oil next year. The best control that I've found for Japanese beetles is twofold. One is physically removing them and killing them, uh, which, you know, if you have a young kid and you pay them, let's say, a dime for every five of those suckers, they bring you dead in a cup, uh, they, they tend to take to, to killing them for you pretty quick. But the other one is to attract the two birds that I know of that will eat them. And one is a cat bird which is similar to a mockingbird, and I've never really been able to attract them by developing habitat for them. Just, you know, if they're around, they're a good ally. But the one that you can attract, uh, especially most areas, I, I don't know where you live, you didn't tell me, um, but most areas where you'll find Japanese beetles, you'll also find a little bird uh, referred to as a jenny wren. And it's actually, you know, its real common name is a house wren. Jenny wren was a, a, a term that people picked up. My grandfather loved these things, and he built little bird houses for them all over the place. We had problems with Japanese beetles, with my grandmother's roses, and with my grandfather's grapevines. And he just put up as many of these little bird houses for jenny wrens as he could. And here's what we would see the jenny wrens do. Little tiny bird. And this beetle's a tough beetle. They'd go get those suckers. And they'd take them down to the driveway where it was hard. And we had like, a, it was like a gravel driveway. And they'd sit there and they'd take them and they'd beat them on the ground until they knocked their wings off. And then they'd take the soft part of the body back to their nest, feed it to their babies or eat it themselves and go do it again. And these little guys would do this like soldiers all day long. And everybody else seemed to have problems with Japanese beetles. But with all these little house wrens around, um, we just really never had that big of a problem. They were there. And they did do some damage. The thing was it was a controlled balance damage where the, the roses and the grapevines and anything else they decided that they wanted always seemed to be able to recover. Remember, anything in nature has a purpose. There's a purpose to a Japanese beetle. And it's, uh, you know, first of all, it's probably not to be in North America. But since they're here, it's become to feed house wrens. So house wren habitat, easy to create, little small generic bird uh, houses, up on poles. They don't really like trees. They like to be up on a pole. Uh, like we used to have them on top of our uh, our poles for our uh, lo uh, what do you call it? Jeez, uh, uh, what our clotheslines where we would dry our clothes uh, outside, uh, and then we would put up some poles. They're, they're they're kind of a perching bird, so they don't like trees because a tree is an opportunity for a predator to get in there. They like to be in a long, high kind of safe environment like that. So a few poles and a few wren houses 
And using some neem oil as an extra control measure, that should take care of your Japanese beetle problem, probably better than milky spore will. Uh, we'll look into milky spore, though. Some I've heard about never really haven't been able to solve my pest problems with other things, so I haven't result, uh, you know, kind of resorted to it. But I'll look into it for you and uh, see what, uh, what I can come up with. Uh, next, I want to do something kind of wrapping the show up today. Uh, that's a little bit different. At least I haven't done this in a long time. There's a, a, a web, not a web, a, a YouTube channel that I subscribe to uh, called Informed Citizen News. And I really like what these folks are doing. They had a great story out in their latest episode about a sheriff standing up to the federal government. I won't say anything more than that now. I'll tell you this is a video, and I'm just bringing the MP3 version of it in. It's about four or five minutes long. Um, it's a segment from the show. I'll put a link to the full episode out there, but I'm going to play the whole segment. I'm going to come back and comment to you. But, you know, you look at things like Oath Keepers and Sheriff Max saying that the sheriff can stand up to the federal government. The sheriff is the chief law enforcement officer uh, in your area, and that sheriff overrides anybody else, especially when he stands within the bounds of the law and the Constitution. And as long as he's inside of that, what he says is the supreme law of his district. And you wonder, can the sheriff really stand up to the federal government? Well, let me tell you what happened. In fact, let me let ICN News and the sheriff himself tell you what happened. The old cowboy westerns, in their greatest glory, often showed the local sheriff as the lone representative of the law. The sheriff was there to keep the peace so that law-abiding citizens could go about their daily business. A modern take on that image comes from Nye County, Nevada, from none other than a transplanted New Yorker, no less. Sheriff Joe DeMeo retired from the New Jersey police force and moved out west. He ran for and won election to Nye County Sheriff in 2002. Sheriff DeMeo takes his oath to the U.S. and Nevada State Constitution so seriously that every action he takes or order he gives must first meet with the constitutional standard. And he isn't shy about letting people know it. Uh, the, one of the responsibilities we have as, as constitutional office holders is ensuring that our uh, our people, our deputies, and uh, those that are uh, within that county, especially those in law enforcement, observe the Constitution, because that is the law of the land. We also have a state constitution as well, which we're also responsible for upholding. Uh, one of the great responsibilities that we have is protection of our constituency, and sometimes that involves uh, being the, um, the buffer intermediary uh, with the federal government. Sheriff DeMeo came to ICN's attention through videos posted on YouTube describing how he intervened to protect one citizen's property rights against what he determined to be illegal attempted cattle seizures by the federal government. In these videos, Sheriff DeMeo describes the dispute and how the federal agencies were acting outside their authority. Take a look at a few scenes from the interview. She has come to a resolution how we can manage and, and take care of Wayne Hage's problems. Uh, with the cattle and the seizure and the, and the federal uh, managed uh, lands, which it's public lands. It's not really, they're not owned by the federal government. They're actually public lands, which are owned by the people. The federal government under the, under the BLM, which is the Bureau of Land Management, which was formed in 1946 uh, from the combination of the grazing office and the, uh, the general land office, formed this management office. The federal government doesn't own the lands. They're actually within the state of Nevada. The state of Nevada, as my I understand, hasn't given those lands to uh, the federal government that within the state of Nevada, and I believe the state of Nevada actually um, uh, has sovereignty on those lands. That's my belief, and what's what I believe as far as uh, you know the state's rights issues and the Tenth Amendment. 
that the power that we have, authority that we have, emanates from the people who we serve. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from the government. It comes from the people we serve. Our forefathers were very clear in, in plain language to state that in our Declaration of Independence and plus our Constitution and laying out the amendments to the Bill of Rights that followed uh, that follows the Constitution and, and in the Articles of the Constitution. A couple of months into my administration, I get a phone call from my lieutenant <clears throat> advising me that they were in the process of conducting an illegal seizure and illegal action against Wayne Hage, uh, which I told them I am informed them that there's, they were carrying out my orders and making sure that no illegal action took place against a, um, uh, a constituent or citizens of Nye County and that any, any uh, lawful action uh, from the federal government would result in an arrest by the people that are there. And at that time I was informed that uh, they were in contact with a, a U.S. attorney and that the uh, U.S. attorney uh, was advising them that uh, advising my 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 uh, my the members of the county sheriff's and my lieutenant that if I didn't allow them to uh, to take these actions against Wayne Hayes that they were going to have a warrant for my arrest, which I said I'll give my address and Dom will be waiting for them. It was up in the Northern Area Command, which informed me that the federal government was uh, was interested in uh, in seizing cattle and they would use any they use any means necessary, including armed um, including armed federal agents, uh, which I informed them to uh, which I informed my my deputy. Uh, to notify the, um, that member of that federal agency that if they brought any armed federal agents to Nye County to conduct an illegal search and seizure, uh, that they would be faced with the Nye County Sheriff's Office SWAT team as well, and then we'd be standing between them and, and the, my constituent and to advise them that uh, nothing was going to take place and if they, if they conduct any kind of illegal action that they would be placed under arrest. Uh, and that goes across the board. You know, we placed uh, members of my office under arrest. I didn't see any reason uh, for us not to be able to uh, to arrest a member of a, of a federal authority if they're conducting an illegal search and at least illegal seizure. And uh, that action didn't take place. Apparently, I didn't know if they were posturing. The deputy didn't know if they were posturing as well. But shortly thereafter, um, we didn't have any more issues with BLM. The series of three videos is interesting and educational to watch. The viewer can get a sense of the legal relationship between county, state, and federal jurisdictions. But most importantly, the county sheriff is the chief law enforcement officer in your community. If your sheriff, like Sheriff DeMeo, knows the Constitution and the state law, then the sheriff can be a force for the protection of life, liberty, and property rights. Most recently, Sheriff DeMeo arrested the Nye County District Attorney for misappropriation of funds. The DA refused to press charges against himself, and a special prosecutor is being brought in to look at the case. The links to Sheriff DeMeo's interview are listed in our news source section. Okay, first off, Sheriff DeMeo, Hero of the Week, salute to you, sir. Thank you for standing up for the Constitution, and thank you for so simply putting the foundational laws of this nation and, uh, and making it clear to anybody what the hell they are and why the hell a sheriff needs to stand up and do his job and say, to here thou shalt come and no further. Big deal. Love it. I mean... This guy, I'd love to get him on the show as a guest. I don't know if he'd want to come on the Survival Podcast, but God, do we need more men like this. This is exactly what Oath Keepers is about. Oath Keepers, I believe, put out a number. 
that if we could get 300 people like this into office as our sheriffs around the nation, we could turn the tide on everything these clowns and the federal government are doing to stamp on the rights of the individual and the state-level rights uh, and the local government government rights by saying, we're the feds, we have supremacy, move out of the way. Well, it doesn't freaking work that way now, does it? And they threaten this man with arrest? And then they threatened to send an armed team. And he said, here's my address, come arrest me. And if you send an armed team, my SWAT team will be there to meet you. We will lock your ass up and you will go to my county jail for violation of the law. Posture all you want, but if you want to throw down, we'll throw down. We have a charge. We have a duty. This is our duty. You're violating the freaking Constitution. You're not going to do it in my backyard. And if you try to do it, we will kick your freaking ass. Talk about throwing me in jail. I'll throw your ass in jail. And you put me in jail, my deputies will throw your ass in jail. We're not going to let you do this. This is wrong. This is unconstitutional. And you do not have authority here. And in the end, do you see what the federal government did? I went, oh, crap. They know. See, and you can't push this if you're the feds. If they had pushed this, one, they could have turned it into a disaster. A disaster as far as gunplay. Two, the sheriff was right. Sheriff, you Sheriffs out there, I want you to stand up, but please only stand up and do things like this. Only put your neck this far out when you know you're right. That's the only way it's going to work. You can't do it just because you want to. You have to do what this man did and find the reason that you're right, state the reason that you're right, and say, we're not going to let it happen. And folks, vote for sheriffs like this man. The sheriff has more pull in what's going on out there right now than anybody else. It's the one place that we can say, you've come too far, go back. The, the, the other reason that I did this is because we talk about things like this all the time, state-level secession, we talk about individual states' rights, we talk about the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution, and people that are left wondering, can anything really be done? Just because we're right, can anything really be done? And the reality is, this is the way it gets done. This is a system, and there's some bad things in the system, but there's a lot of good things in the system. We have to learn to work this system if we want to turn the tide. This isn't about Democrat or Republican. This isn't about liberal or conservative, right? This isn't about any paradigm politically. This is about the foundation of the United States Constitution and what the hell it says that our government is not permitted to do to us. The document of negative liberties, as Barack Obama calls it, and I think that's great. I want the government impeded from infringing on the rights of the people and the states. That's why it's in the frickin' Constitution. So kudos to this sheriff Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. And folks, I wanted to leave you because I come back for one show this week at the end of the week after my vacation with some hope. This is hope. In November, think really hard about who you vote for for sheriff. And if you are in law enforcement, you have any contact with the sheriff's department whatsoever, you have more credibility than I do as a private citizen. Please let your sheriff in your community, and you folks, private citizens too, let your sheriff in your community know about this. Send them, not my show, don't put all the other things in front of them, send them the YouTube video of Informed Citizen News and ask them to watch the first five minutes of it because you want them to know where their authority lies and what you expect of them as an elected official to do for you. Do that everywhere and every place you can, and if you are prior service, current service, law enforcement, anything that qualifies, join Oath Keepers, follow Sheriff Mack, follow this gentleman here, and say that I took an oath and I'm going to keep it, regardless of whether or not I still wear the uniform. Because the people that stand up and say, hey, God on my watch, it's got to be us because there isn't anybody else. With that, I will sign off uh, for the week. 
and I'll be back with you Monday. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living 